So is it sake, sakai, or sake? I've always heard it pronounced sake. Sake. But I think we should just ask our guest since he is the authority on it. Oh, yeah. Our guest is a sommelier of uh, however you say that. So we'll find out. Welcome to If This Bar Could Talk, a podcast about bartenders and the stories they have to tell, as well as the storied history of cocktails, spirits, and bars. I'm Blair Beavers, and here's your host, Leanne Sims. Welcome to the show, Nick Harris. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. So you are the general manager of Rishi Sushi. Yes, that's another difficult one to say. Yeah, here in Columbus. So what is it? Is it Sakai, Sake, or Saki? It's Sake. 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 Okay. So what would happen if I ordered a Sakai in a Japanese restaurant? Well, Sakai is a type of salmon. Okay. <laughs> Quite literally. So it would be a smelly cocktail. For yeah, it would be really, really interesting. <laughs> I always tell people not to give me stupid ideas for cocktails because I will somehow do something with it. And you may or may, you might just hate me for it. Like if I decide to go home now and come up with a salmon cocktail. That would be pretty cool, actually. It could be salmon colored, yeah, at least. Yeah, salmon colored. That would colored. be beautiful. So walk me through uh, what it takes to become a sommelier of sake. Um, and as far as we know, you're the only one in the state of Ohio. Is that correct? That is, It's not correct for oh. Ohio. Um, there's, a, there's a couple others. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, is up in Cleveland uh, running a, a really small kaiseki restaurant up there. He's also a sake sommelier. And then my sensei is actually from Cleveland. So whenever mm. he's in Ohio, uh, never quite sure when that is. Uh, definitely have, like the authority on sake in the Western world. Um, so you have a sensei of sake. Yeah. So the my certification is through the Sake Education Council, um, whose chairperson, the president, uh, would be John Gottner, and he is like the definite authority on sake in the Western world. If you ever pick up a sake book written in English, there's a very good chance that it was written by him um, or by one of his students. Interesting. So how did you, what started you on the path of becoming a sommelier? For, yeah, so kind of going back uh, Japanese food was always just part of growing up for me for s some reason. I just kind of took an interest in it at a really young age, uh, you know, started making it. Sake is a often used ingredient in Japanese cooking. So it was something that was always kind of on my radar, but it wasn't really until I started managing a bar. It wasn't even when I was bartending um, when I first started at Rishi, uh, we had a very small sake list, something like six sake at the time. And whenever I took over the management position for the bar, uh, I kind of obviously wanted to learn a lot more about everything. So I did the, the normal stuff, the cocktails, liquor, wine, beer, and then got back around to the sake list. And it was... Just the more and more that I learned, 
I just had to keep going further and further. And I knew it was something that wasn't represented here in the city. So I wanted to make sure that it was. So So bartending came before the sommelier of sake. Absolutely, okay. yes. Okay. So then you went to Japan or did you to to receive your certification or how did that work? So the next step once I was like, oh, I need to learn more about this, I picked up John's books, John Gottner's books, and I read through all of them, learned a great deal. I probably did six months of self-study, working with some of my distributors, you know, getting to try more sake, bringing them in. And then it was like, okay, I feel like I know a lot about this. I should go and make this official now. So who should I get my certification through? Because there are like three major ones. And the obvious choice for me, because I started with John Gottner's books, was to take his courses. Um, And currently it is a two-level system. I took my first level or my certified sake professional examination in New York. Um, Wow, almost over two years ago now. And... That was held in Brooklyn Quarter, uh, which is an industry city in Brooklyn. And it was really cool. First time getting to see a sake brewery, having it be a small craft brewery based in the U.S. uh, was just really awesome. So anytime John would be talking about this or that at, you know, in a quarter, uh, he would just be like, hey, Brandon, do you have that in the back? And he would run off into the, the actual quarter part and, you know, grab whatever it was, whether it was kasu or, you know, a hydrometer to measure ABV, just bring it out and be like, yeah, this is the thing that I was talking about. So, cool. and then after that, um, I wanted obviously to finish the highest level certification that was in Japan. We were based actually at the Sake and Sochu's advisor building in Tokyo, uh, which was really cool to be in this. It's a pretty massive building in Tokyo that's kind of a major hub for a lot of Sake and Sochu breweries. And then we get to go and tour several others. And then after all of the examination and that course finished, I actually had the opportunity to go and intern at a koda in the Shimane prefecture of Japan, which is was like a two-hour flight from Tokyo. So kind of off the beaten path, uh, Shimane is actually the second least populous prefecture in Japan. The least populous is actually right next door which is totally, and yeah, I had a f- wonderful four days at, no, three days, excuse me, at the Rihaku Brewery um, in Matsue, and then I came home, and yeah. Just and how been, long did the entire course take? The first level course is a three-day course. The, high, the higher level course was a six-day course. And um, then the internship. And then the internship, which I did several days. And then I was there for like another week and a half afterwards. 
So what is the cool. certification process? Uh, what does it consist of? Is it like you learn how to make it and then you do you then like go on to taste the different ones and identi- identify, I, I don't, I guess first, if you could tell us what sake is. Yeah. Um, so what sake is, you'll commonly hear it described as a rice wine. I don't really like that at all. Um, it's the same way we don't call wine a grape beer. Oh, yeah. Um, it's very similar. That was a new one that I just recently heard from one of my sake friends. And I was like, I'm I'm stealing that. So I like that, yeah. Jonathan, if you hear this, I definitely <laughs> just stole that from you. Um, and yeah, it, so it's has its own distinct qualities in terms of manufacturing, in terms of just the process, uh, like the finishing processes that are all very unique to itself. So it's really its own thing. In terms of production, uh, it's going to be a little bit more similar to the production of beer because you're, you know, you're starting with something that is predominantly starch. Mm-hmm. A um, grain. A grain, yeah. You're starting with a grain in beer making. You know, it's whatever, barley, wheat, mm-hmm. rye, whatever you happen to be using. In sake, it's always going to be rice. So the rice part of rice wine is correct. The wine part is not. Okay. Um, I don't know how much into specifics you want me to get. Well, so it starts with rice. So you cook the rice down to convert the starch into sugar. No, actually. Um, So one of the things that makes sake very special, um, kind of going back to beer making process, because I feel like that's something that a lot of people are comfortable with to some degree, um, one of the first things that you do in beer making is you malt it. You have to malt the grains. Mm. Um, in sake production, the very first thing that we do with the rice is polish it. Uh, so we're taking off parts of the outside because the starch is concentrated towards the center in sake rice, in all rice really, but even more so in sake rice. So there's nothing to germinate. So we have to do that conversion from starch to sugar with something else. Okay. In sake making, that something else is another microorganism uh, called kojikin. And this is a microorganism that is going to do or going to provide the enzymes to break starches into sugar proteins into amino acids and that's where a lot of the energy and a lot of the distinctions in sake can really come from is the process of Mm. producing the koji it's very specific very like to like a very very detailed account of the way that each brewery for honestly each different kind of sake they're producing and how they manufacture their koji is going to be different. So is this a natural occurring microorganism? Yes, it is. And so each, is it like wine where each region has like a different uh, type of sake or how is that? Regionality of sake is a very 
complicated subject. Um, it's honestly something that I am by no means an expert in. Um, it is extremely different than the way that we think of wine and its idea of terroir. Um, sake is trying to define something to be terroir for sake is very challenging. Um, the koji itself, it is naturally occurring, really no, but no one that I know of, I'm sure there are a few crazy uh, toji out there who are using natural koji kin in the air. There are very few of them doing that, if, if really any at all. It's okay. all going to be purchased. Um, it's just going to be what type of koji you're using. In sake production, it's pretty much always yellow koji, and even beyond that, there are, it's a microorganism. There's a ton of different ones. And so are the koji strains like a, a closely guarded secret of the different distillers? Or, or do they call them distillers? The brewers. Brewers, okay. Um, typically not. Um, like I said, they're typically just bought from a company that specializes in manufacturing gotcha. and growing the microorganisms. So they don't lend to the flavor or? Massively so. Oh, okay. Um, but a lot of it, the specific strain isn't nearly as important as the skill of the, the toji and the way that they're doing the propagation and the other thousand steps in the process uh, of sake making. So they polish the grain to expose the as much starch as possible because mm -hmm. we all know starch makes alcohol eventually. Well, those are going to be the different grades. So when you look at a bottle of sake, it's typically going to have some, it will have a designation on it. Uh, so you'll see words like Junmai or Honjozo or Ginjo or Daiginjo on a bottle. And those are going to be your grades of sake. And it's all based off of that specific percentage that you're taking off. So if you look at a Daiginjo sake, which is going to be our highest grade, it's surprisingly easier to talk about it from top down. Um, what is going to be required legally in Japan is a 50% polishing rate. That means 50% of the rice is left. So the same ibuai, the polishing rate, is expressed as a percentage of rice remaining after polishing. Okay. So at Daiginjo, you're at 50%. You've removed half of the rice. And it is extremely important that during the polishing process that the rice does not crack, it does not break. Um, you are literally going around the outside and removing very, very, very small portions of the rice. A by, the byproduct of producing, of milling sake rice is rice flour. Oh, okay. So that's how little we're removing on each pass. And does each brewery, do they polish their own rice or do they receive it already polished? You can do it either way. Um, you do not see a lot of breweries 
milling their own rice because the machines to do it are extraordinarily expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, Rihaku, the brewery that I worked at, does. They do own their own rice milling machine. So I've had a chance to, to see a couple up close. Masumi also had one. They had several. Masumi is a very, very large brewery. But it's the giant, like, two, three-story tall built, like, machines that are air-driven, like, like flour mills. Yeah. But operating to not just to get flour, but to be able to maintain whole intact rice grains. That's so interesting. So is there like a, is there like a special person there at the, the mills just making sure that, or is it calibrated so that it polishes them perfectly every time or? Yeah, that's one of the things that go that makes the machines so expensive that they're very, very modern pieces of equipment. Looking at kind of like the history of sake, what we know as Ginjo and Dai Ginjo sake has really only been on the market for maybe 40 years um, because that level of being able to polish off that much rice wasn't available just technologically. Um at any commercial scale. So the higher the grade, the better the sake or no? Not necessarily. Um, It's kind of, it's going to be like a function of your personal taste, what you think is going to be a better sake. Um, The main thing that with a ginjo or a dai ginjo, everything's being done by hand typically. And then you're going to have less, again, typically, amino acids present in the sake because as you kind of get outside of the starch center, there's going to be more and more proteins and uh, amino acids and also lipids, so some fats. So the sake tends to be lighter, uh, a little bit more aromatic. That's more of a function of the yeast, but not entirely. It's amazing. Yeah, so so you polish the grains, you introduce the microorganism to a percentage of the sock uh, to the to the rice, yes. And then you add yeast after that, or uh, you got to develop lactic acid somehow to protect the yeast uh, from all of the contaminants in the air. So the most modern method again is going to be just adding lactic acid at like at the beginning stage and then you're going to add your yeast and then you're going to let that develop for two weeks into a starting batch so that's your very beginning um is going to be two weeks pretty much as like a minimum to develop a really really high count really healthy yeast colony and then you're going to do three additions over four days after that and then you're going to actually do the full fermentation so the essentially the major things that makes sake production very unique that it's it's pretty much threefold it's going to be that use of koji like we've talked about those three additions are also very unique it's called sandanji komi and that is going to be after you have 
that beginning, you know, that yeast colony. Now you're going to take that and add the koji after that. So now we have this yeast colony and we have it protected with lactic acid somehow. The first day you're going to add a certain amount, depending on how big the batch is, of steamed rice, koji, and water. And then the next edition, you're going to add roughly twice that amount that you added the first day. And then the same way on the third edition, you're going to add double the second edition. And this is just to really, really keep a healthy yeast colony. So you get it up to a point where you know, there's not really much that they can do. You dilute everything back down, you let them grow again, and then you do it again. And then you let it ferment for anywhere from like 17 to 35, 40 days, depending on what you're making. And then they bottle it. No. <laughs> there are still several finishing steps. Um, but the, the third other thing that really makes sake special in terms of its production method. We talked about Koji doing the conversion from starch to sugar. Mm -hmm. And I hope that we know that yeast is what does the conversion from mm -hmm. sugar to alcohol. Mm -hmm. If you think of beer making, you have that step of malting, mm -hmm. creating a wort, and then that's done. That's one step. You've right. converted your starch into sugar. Yeah. And now you take that wort and then you take it to another tank and you ferment that. Mm -hmm. Two distinct steps, right? Mm -hmm. In sake making, that process of conversion from starch to sugar mm -hmm. and sugar to alcohol happens simultaneously. Mm -hmm. It's called multiple parallel fermentation. So mm -hmm. there are two fermentations happening, multiple, parallel at the same time. And they're both different forms of fermentation. Wow. So those are going to be pretty much the three major things that makes sake really unique in terms of its manufacturing process. How long has sake been made? In something that, you know, if we went back in time to be able to recognize it. Yeah. Maybe getting close to a thousand years. Something that you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's. Kind of still the same. Kind of sake, like not good, but kind of sake. And then I've I've had it hot and I've had it cold. Mm. Can any sake be drank, drunk hot or cold? Or are there certain ones that you only do hot and certain ones that you only do cold? Or? I was going to say, can be, absolutely. I mean, if you find a sake that you like warm, whatever, like go for it. Um but in general, and I still I still do this most of the time, there are very few times where I will look at a bottle of sake. The, the, the brewery, the toji, the brewmaster will tell you how to drink that sake on pretty much any bottle. It'll be like, this sake is good at these temperatures. Gotcha. Like it's labeled on the bottle? It's Typically, a, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, I'm sure there are some that are not. But most are going to, at some point, say, serve chilled or great warm. Um, I 95% of the time will default to what 
the brewery and the toji themselves say. Um, because when the brewmaster sits down to make a sake, working with the president and the owners of the company, they set out to make a specific style of sake. Um, I could get into the specifics of why some sake is good warm versus, you know, oh, shouldn't be warm. Um, so in general, again, talking about like the ginjos and daiginjos of the world, anything that's going to be a, a lot more aromatic um, or something that has a lot of really delicate flavors, all of those are pretty much caused by really, really much lighter molecules, which the boiling temperature of is going to be significantly lower, uh, somewhere, you know, 70, 80 degrees. You're going to start boiling off, you know, esters and all those kinds of molecules that are going to give flavor and aroma that the brewery has worked so hard and so tediously to put into that specific sake mm -hmm. that you don't want to boil them off. Sure, that makes uh, sense. It'll lose its character. Um, a sake in, you know, a Junmai or a Honjozo, so a, a lower grade, isn't going to have, you know, a ton of those really delicate or overly aromatic um, compounds in them. So they typically can stand up to heating better. I've definitely had Daiginjo's warm, like some that are absolutely great warm. I have some Ginjo, some Junmais that I would never, ever, ever, ever heat up. Um, but in general, if I think of the sakes that I've had in my life, they typically fall somewhere in that Honjozo Junmai category um, or below that as, as Futsu which is table sake, a non-premium sake. So if you if you buy a bottle of sake and it says good warm, so you drink it warm, not hot, like not like hot tea. Yeah, pretty much anything over, I would say like, what's, uh, what is Fahrenheit? I can't Fahrenheit. Um, what's the centigrade? It would probably be around like 35 centigrade. So that's about 85 degrees. 30. Is that? It's close to that. Okay. I don't know. 40, yeah. 40 is 98.6. 40 is 98.6. No, 37 is 98.6. So it's got to be about 95. Okay. So Fahrenheit then, I would probably say not to go over like 130. I really wouldn't be going over that temperature Fahrenheit wise. Um Again, if, if it's a futsu and you just want something really hot and it's cheap and you're not really looking to dissect the, uh, you know, all of the complexities of that sake, mm -hmm. heat it up to, you know, 150, 160, 170, I don't fucking care. Like, <laughs> like it's going to, you know, as you get hotter and harder, you're going to lose more of the character and obviously some of the alcohol is going to boil off as right. well but nobody you know, wants that if you want to grab a cheap <laughs> bottle of sake and you know heat it up to 150 degrees just to be warm inside 
go for it. The alcohol will still be there. It'll still taste like sake. It'll just be slightly less characteristic. So does sake work well in cocktails? It does. Um, I've had several, several sake cocktails just, you know, around the U.S., a few in Japan, not as many there. And it's something that's really fun for me to play with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am always looking to do something with sake, especially with the low ABV cocktail movement kind of really steadily like increasing traction right. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, sake is a phenomenal alternative to using some higher proof spirits. Nice. What is the typical ABV on sake? Um, typical, you're going to see somewhere between like 14 and 16. Okay. Um, it can get up to around 21, 22%. So similar to wine. Similar, yeah. And the, the, yeah, you'll drink it very similar to wine. Don't think that you need to go out and you know get a specific sake set. You can use your wine glasses at home. Uh, if you want to drink hot sake, it's actually a little bit better to use a mug um, to heat up the sake. Um, if you want to do it in the microwave, just slightly, like a little bit at a time. Don't go too fast. Don't go too hot. Gotcha. So um, sake, a good low proof alternative for the lower ABV cocktail movement. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's a huge treat for our guests to have sake cocktails when they do the, the uptown cocktail tour because it's so unique and, and different. And um, I think this will be a great time for Definitely. you to make us a cocktail. What are you going to make for us tonight? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, so the cocktail I'll be making today is called Kano Have This Dance. Um, I, this was definitely like an inside joke, mostly for me, but I still (laughs) love the name. Uh, so the sake that I will be using today is from Wihaku. Uh, it is the dance of discovery is the English name for it. It's made with a rice called Kanomai and Kanomai is only used at the moment in the Shimane prefecture. So there are about... There are about a dozen breweries in the Shimane Prefecture, and they're the only ones who have access to this rice. So, um, essentially, the name Kanomai translates roughly to, like, God's Dancing. Okay. So, that's where the name Dance of Discovery came from, and I just like the pun of Kan, spelled with a K, so Kano, have oh, this dance, dance. Like instead it. of it being Kano nice. Mai. Awesome. So. Sounds wonderful. So we're going to take a break and you're going to make us a cocktail. Sounds good. All right. And we are back with the Kano, have this dance. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Cheers. Mm, That's tasty. Oh, that is good. So tell us how you made this, Nick. Yeah, so the kind of the stance, like I said, I uses the Dance of Discovery from Mihaku. It's the 
definitely the main ingredient here. Um, it's actually a whopping three ounces of the sake. Um, and then we use Soho's lychee liqueur today. I normally use Giffard, but Soho's is also pretty good. Used three quarters of an ounce of that. And then it is a quarter ounce each of lemon juice, fresh squeezed lemon juice, and a special ingredient called kabosu no himitsu. It's a, another Japanese ingredient. Uh, kabosu is a type of citrus fruit uh, native to like the more southern portions of Japan. I believe this is coming from Oita, um, is where this kabosu is coming from. And then the no himitsu essentially is that it is blended with also the essential oil and some local honey as well. So it's definitely like a citrus honey syrup um, that is used in this cocktail and an egg white. So with that, I have to dry shake it first and then shake with ice, of course, strained. And then we have it topped with some beautiful hibiscus dust and a couple dashes of ango. That's oh, really good. It's really good. So the, is the hibiscus just for aesthetics or does it um what is does it do something for the cocktail as far as flavor? Yeah, so the hibiscus here is definitely being a flower is very much playing to the very floral component that lychee just mm -hmm. is. Lychee to me is an extremely floral um, surprisingly fruit, not being a flower, um, but it has a very floral taste and the hibiscus really helps mesh with that. And hibiscus also has a really nice, almost earthiness to it. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of astringency uh, that actually pairs really well with uh, the sake. Um, being a junmai sake is going to have a little bit more of those heavier notes to it mm -hmm. than something you would find in a higher grade. So between the earthiness and the florality, it really helps to tie together both the lychee and the sake mm -hmm. together a little bit better. It's really delicious. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Blair? I like it. It's, uh, like you said, very floral. Um, but I like that. It, I like that it's not sweet and floral. Yeah, see, I don't... It's I just don't, floral. Yeah, that's the... So like this... Uh, when you say floral, I think of uh, what's that uh, elderflower th yeah. stuff that I hate. Oh yeah, yeah. It's Bartender's not like ketchup. that. Saint Germain. Yeah, yeah, Saint Germain. It's not that at all. I can't no. stand that no. stuff. That's just sweetness that happens to be floral. Well, I say year. I can't stand it, but I do like it in small quantities in a cocktail. Mm -hmm. But when you get too heavy-handed with it, it's just gross. Right. This is really good. Um, Balance is the name of the game always. Yeah, so true. And can, uh, if our listeners go to Rishi, is this on your menu? Can it they? definitely is. Okay, awesome. So tell me about Rishi. Um, it's, is it owned by a single person or who, who owns Rishi? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's locally owned. Okay. Um, it, they're actually two doctors. Okay. Um, and this is their, their restaurant. And that's actually where the name Rishi comes from. Is uh, one of the owners was one of the original owners uh, when they opened it, and that's actually named after his son. Mm. So, amazing food. Yes. Sushi, of mm -hmm. course. 
um, some great ramen. There's a lot of Korean influence, it seems, in the menu. I was going to say the hot kitchen is definitely uh, that pan-Asian, but with a definite focus on Japanese, Korean, and Indonesian. Okay. And then uh, you guys have a happy hour? We do. Monday to Thursday, 5 to 7. Okay. What, what kind of deals do you give for your happy hour? Well, first thing is a dollar off glasses of sake. Oh, nice. Um, I also we also have a really large selection of Japanese beers, uh, of which I offer two dollars off for happy hour, okay, and a dollar off cocktails such as the one we're having right now. Sounds like a great deal. What about food? Food wise, um, our sushi rolls are buy any two get your third for free. Mm. Um, mm. We have a our sushi panini, uh, which is kind of one of our signature dishes on for $9 instead of 13. And then uh, for the hot kitchen side, if you bring a friend and you both get a hot entree, you guys can get an appetizer for free. Or if you want to for yourself, I'm not gonna judge. <laughs> nice, that's awesome. So tell me about, um, does sake have specific glassware? Like, you know, we'd like to use the Glencairns to taste whiskey, is there a specific vessel there are many a vessel um unlike different regions of europe japan as a whole never really came together at any point in history and was like this is the sake class um and i'm not upset by that by any means for anybody you know just you know curious to try sake i mean how even at Rishi, I serve sake out of what are ostensibly wine glasses, okay. um, especially for the chilled. Um, I use little like tasting wine glasses, stemless. Mm -hmm. Stemware is never really caught on in Japan for sake, mm -hmm. but using stemless wine glasses or just use a wine glass mm -hmm. when you're okay. drinking it at home. I've had sake out of a box. Yeah, the masu. Um, and ceramic, little ceramic glasses. Yeah, so you'll definitely see all kinds of different ceramics. Japan has a really rich tradition of ceramics in general. Um, so you'll see like the ceramic carafes mm -hmm. um, are really common. Those are called tokuri. Uh, it actually comes from the sound of like pouring out from the tokuri. It makes that tok 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 sound. Mm -hmm. So it's Tokuri, um, for the name of that vessel. And then the little tiny glasses, the ceramic glasses that they give you, they are not shot glasses. <laughs> um, the, if the, the ones that you typically see are called ochoko, um, and they're just very small glasses, and they're meant to be small and still to be sipped. But uh, what it's for is so that you're constantly refilling each other's glasses. Um, sake in general, drinking sake in general is a very social thing. Okay. So pouring for each other is a must do for one, especially when you're out with anybody. Um, well, that's good to know. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like uh, how they have tea ceremonies and stuff too, right? Yes. Yes, for sure. You never want to, if you're with a group of friends, unless you are like the bestest of best friends, 
Like you're not really supposed to be pulling for yourself unless you're, like I said, in this really casual setting. Um, but like if we were all four of us sitting here, we're, you know, drinking sake, we would always want to be pouring for each other when our glasses were empty. Oh, it's good to know. It's good etiquette. It's about the only like all but universal etiquette around sake drinking. Uh, same way Japan never really sat down and came up with the rules of like, this is how it's supposed to be. Like the, you know, like the French court of sommeliers did in terms of drinking French wine and then later on wine as a whole. Um, we don't really have that. So if someone uh, is new to sake and they want to try to, what, where should one start? Where should one start in like, sake? Like what would you purchase first? Or what is your, your favorite sake? Definitely my favorite is not going to be everyone's favorite, especially for a first time. Okay. I like really, and I like older style sake, so much bigger. I like Junmai's, I like Tokubetsu's. Um, those are really in my like my wheelhouse. I don't, I drink a decent bit of Ginjo and Dai Ginjo because that's partly my job and partly because I do love it. But typically when I have a bottle at home, it's of a, a Junmai or a Honjozo. And do you serve flights at Rishi where they could go and explore? I do, yeah. Um, it's my sake sommelier selection, and it's all it's constantly different. I, okay. I always, a lot of times it's going to be sake either completely off the menu or I got bored and wanted to try one of my sake that I typically only have bottle only. So now I have an open bottle and now mm. you guys get to try it. I'm doing that. Yeah. So I would love to. That's a great idea. That would be more. a great way to learn. Yeah. And just be at the bar with you and kind of talk through what you're tasting. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't know anything about it. Um, I like all alcohol, though. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm always interested Willing in exploring. To try it. Yeah, I'm things. always happy to, to sit down and talk sake. It's definitely like my favorite thing to get to do at work. So please, so like if you're, you're interested, like let's let's sit down and chat. I would love that. Um, so how did you are you from Columbus or I'm not from Columbus. No, I'm from eastern Ohio. OK, how long have you been here? Um, almost seven years now. OK, all right. And when can our guests uh, visit you at Rishi? When are you there? You can find me at Rishi pretty much every dinner. Um, typically, I'm not there Sunday. Okay. Do you have any um, fun, interesting stories to share from your days uh, studying to be a sommelier or any Travel bartending? or bartending. Anything you'd like Ooh, to share? Ooh, some interesting stories. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> it can go any direction. We are. Okay, I'm like, how salacious should I get you? Here? <laughs> yeah, we are always Lay it on us. explicit rating. Drop the F-bomb if you feel like it. Okay. Not a problem here. <laughs> um, I definitely had some, some really fun nights. Coming up on almost a year since I was in Japan. So I've really been just, it's been on my mind more and more because it's, you know, coming up to like, oh, wait, I haven't been there like a year now uh so kind of getting to reminisce about that's been nice um i definitely remember one night there was like a group of leave it ended up being like 
six or seven of us uh, met up at a bar in Tokyo after class one day. I think it was either, it was the night before, it was the night after our examination. So after our full day of examination, we went out to this bar and like I said, there were like seven of us in Japan and you'll see them occasionally in the US. Um, a type of sake size or bottle is called a one cup. It's a little one serving, it's 180 milliliters is, is the serving size for a one cup. Okay. The, you know, seven or eight of us, I think we polished off like 60 oh one cups hmm. between us. How many of, of you were there? Like seven, <laughs> seven or eight, somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, obviously, after having an Ishobin 1.8 liters of sake, um, some of that night is gone from my memory for sure. But um, the the bar that we went to had this really, really fun it's a gimmick, but the thing that they did is they had a special freezer, um, and you, you'll see this occasionally in Japan, where they supercritically like chilled all of their one cups. And this place had like probably 60 or 70 different kinds of one cup sake. Mm. Um, but they stored them at supercritical temperatures. So like the thing is when you get your sake, you shake it or you hit it or something, and then it freezes into a slushy. And <laughs> it was just so much fun. The first time, like, because I got there a little bit late, I saw someone like get their one cup and then shake it. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, why are you shaking your sake? Like, this makes no sense to me. And then I look back like at their thing and it's now like opaque. I'm like, what the hell did you just do to that sake? And then they handed it to me to, to try, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's a slushy now. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I'm like, oh, it's super critical, like chilled. So That's that was interesting. It was really, really cool. I, unfortunately, do not have one of those fancy super critical freezers like they did. Um, I, I would like to get one. I've like I've seen them around, but they That'd are. That'd be cool. So is that kind of like the Japanese version of Jello shots or something? I guess. <laughs> uh, probably. I. It was. It was a good time for sure. <laughs> that's wow. That's pretty cool. So you said you have seen them in the states. I've seen one cups in the states, um, and and I've looked up online just out of curiosity to see how much one of the those freezers would be. And uh, I'm not going to be getting one anytime soon <laughs> no. unless I have a massive spike in demand for them. Well, well, I mean, I mean, I want to try one now. Like I, all of our listeners, are I want some try more. Yeah, I want some too. <laughs> that sounds like that fun. could be your summer thing. Yeah. Would, oh, that yeah. would be awesome. That is a good idea. Well, uh, we can write a letter to the owners if you like. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mission but, critical. Just. He yeah. needs this. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, if it doesn't this. come from me, it might have a little more impact. <laughs> it's, uh, it's authentic Japanese 
I'm all the time like, hey, I want you to buy this. I want you to buy this. So it'd be nice if somebody else did it for once. All right. Any other stories you want to share? Not this time. All right. All right. Well, we'll have you back again so you can tell us more stories. And um, this is a really wonderful cocktail. And so I hope our listeners can get to Rishi and taste uh, some of your fabulous sake cocktails. And it's sake. Sake. Learn something important tonight. All right. Nick Harris, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Thanks. Cheers. 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 Listeners, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Seabus Craft Cocktail Tour. Visit our website at columbuscraftcocktailtour.com for cocktail tour dates, women in whiskey tastings, special events, merchandise. And if you're looking for a gift for that special person in your life, get them a gift card to our cocktail tour. Thank you to our producer, Greg Hansberry, and to the biographer for our original music. And please remember to drink responsibly and be cocktail curious. Cheers. Cheers.